Good afternoon, and welcome to Who's in the Kitchen. You're listening to WDRT 91.9 FM from Viroqua, Wisconsin, and streaming live on the internet at WDRT.org, where you can find this show and previous shows. We have many podcasts of previous Who's in the Kitchen shows, and now also Digging Deep shows, which is my new farming show, which airs on the last Saturday of every month. Otherwise, Who's in the Kitchen is on every every Saturday at noon. So thank you so much for tuning in. And we're just about to enter the um, trout fishing season, or fishing season in general. I don't know. I'm going to, I have two experts here, Duke Welter, who lives in Viroqua, and uh, Joseph Meyer, who lives down by Seneca. Correct. Would you say close enough? That's, and um, they are fishermen. They are lovers of trout and trout streams and protecting fish and encouraging fish to be um, healthy and so forth. So we're going to talk about that a bit. We'll talk about um, fishing uh, methods and fishing uh, guides that are available, uh, good ways to find sites to fish in. And then these two guys are both wonderful chefs. So the, the latter part of our show is just going to be how to prepare fish and a lot of good recipes. So thank you for being here, Duke. Well, it's a treat to be with you, Philothea. Oh, thank you. And Joseph. Always nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Now, Duke, you are kind, you're retired, right? I am retired. Right. Uh, I'm I'm a former all kinds of things. (laughs) And Joseph, you, I know you work at the food co-op two days a week. I do. I do keep my hand in it. I I think that's really great. What a great combination to be a chef and then be right in the produce department. sure. (laughs) And getting to know the suppliers and so forth. Interacting directly with Mm -hmm. the producers is awesome. Well, I think both of these gentlemen really are, as cooks, they're very interested in where their food is coming from. The fresher, the better, um, the more safe, um, you know, environment in which plants and animals have grown. And uh, I know Duke is also interested in all kinds of hunting. And um, so it's just, these are lovers of this area of Wisconsin. And they care and they are knowledgeable about lots of species, not just trout. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to talking to them today. Um, Did you guys just meet? Tell us how you met. You're we've, laughing. So we've we've known each other and known of each other for a long time through Duke's work with with Trout Unlimited. I'm I'm a rank and file uh, card carrying Trout Unlimited member. Duke is part of the hierarchy, the aristocracy of. He's Trout a Duke. Unlimited. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when when Duke walks through a, a Trout Unlimited meeting or an outdoor conservation meeting, there there's pointing and whispering. That's Duke. Oh, that's, oh, okay. That's, that's, <laughs> and I'm, I'm just a back-of-the-room guy. Yeah, uh, they're both very humble, but they have a lot of knowledge. So um, I, when I first talked with Duke, and I have interviewed him several times over the years, I really had no idea of how important it was to uh, maintain habitats for fish. Um, and, you know, I care about herbicides and pesticides and things like that but I just didn't really uh, you know have an in-depth knowledge that that there are all kinds of organizations that are really working on um, keeping our the our wildlife healthy and uh, reproducing and so forth so um, you can talk a little bit I mean what's Trout Unlimited about? Well Trout Unlimited works across the, across the country 
and in some other nations to preserve, protect, and restore cold water habitats. Uh, we have 400 chapters across the U.S. and several hundred thousand members, and in Wisconsin we have 21 chapters and about 6,000 members, mm -hmm. including right in our area, the, uh, the, the Cooley Region TU chapter, which includes our counties plus La Crosse and Monroe and Richland. Mm -hmm. uh, they work on uh, protecting habitat by, uh, by advocating for land uses that don't beat it up and by uh, developing watershed projects that, that help the, uh, not only the riparian zone along streams but in-stream areas and then the upland areas nearby because all those have an impact on the health of our stream. As it happens, we are blessed in our area to be surrounded by uh, high-quality water, uh, the, probably the biggest assemblage of uh, spring-fed creeks, cold-water creeks, anywhere in the world. Oh, we, really? In the Driftless area, we have about 6,000 miles of trout water, and you probably notice that we don't have any lakes except impoundments that are dammed up trout streams. Uh, and our streams have suffered since uh, European settlement by uh, land use that, that caused uh, these uh, tremendous amount of soil erosion, soil loss off the uplands uh, that, got, that developed all these thick blankets of sediment on the bottom of our stream valleys beginning probably in the 1890s and continuing until these upland erosion control projects began in Coon Valley, Wisconsin, uh, with the country's first watershed project in mid, the mid-1930s. We've tried to continue those efforts in, to improve land use so that it's protecting not only the soil on the hillsides, but the, the water quality and the habitat in the streams. And those efforts continue, and we've had a real active group of uh, agencies and nonprofits like Trout Unlimited and land trusts and, and other groups that have had, uh, had, have been working together for a couple of decades now and have done hundreds of projects together and put a lot of money into these streams to try and um, um, stabilize them, to develop habitat uh, so that they're not uh, choked with sediment, uh, so that they're much more diverse. Uh, and also so that more resi resilient against the climate change that we're experiencing, the recent floods, the uh, warmer summertime temperatures. All those things threaten, threaten our trout streams, but here in the Driftless area with our streams that are fed by cold groundwater at, that is rich in the chemicals that lead to vegetation and bugs and fish being healthy, uh, Unlike uh, a lot of the rest of the state, the predictions are pretty dire for what's going to happen with a lot of our trout streams, our cold water streams, in the next 75 years. So we're working mm -hmm. to make those streams more right. resilient. Well, yeah. The way, the Joseph. way trout differ from other fish <clears throat> is that they need cold, clean water uh, to reproduce. Um, those of us in Trout Unlimited, um, we're not fond of a stocking truck backing up to a ditch, dumping in hatchery-raised fish and calling it a fishery. Um, protecting the cold, clean water not only helps the fish, but it helps the entire environment that, that's around the trout streams. So you the, want the trout to be able to reproduce ab naturally absolutely. and not to stock streams. Ab absolutely. Uh -huh. The um, collection of um, 
pure spring creeks here in the Driftless region is, is a stronger concentration of spring creeks than any other place on the planet. And I, I want to quote Dave Vitrano, but I, I want to make sure it's right. Less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's fresh water, less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's fresh water is capable of producing trout, naturally producing trout. So what we have here is a, is a treasure, and um, working to save it is a labor of love. Wow. And just as you were talking, I just want to summarize. It sounds like people concerned about flooding soil uh fish um there's there's a there's a lot of different interests and disciplines all connected here yes and are these these would be government uh departments or all, all more private organizations or a combination of them or do they work together <laughs> well there's several several different agencies from the federal to the county level that all have a role in this, and they uh, each one kind of bites off a piece that is important to them. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture is working on keeping agricultural lands working, keeping soil on the land instead of flowing down into the streams, and uh, and and preserving water quality in these in these streams. The Fish and Wildlife Service is interested in the diversity of of uh, critters that live in our watersheds. And so they like it when we do a project and we put in habitat that, that benefits turtles and salamanders and snakes and, and other species. And uh, as well, uh, the vegetation in that watershed that, that uh, is helpful for songbirds and small mammals and wildlife. And the DNR, uh, part of its charges uh, recreational uh, fishing opportunities. And so they've had a, a long time interest in trout habitat. It's just that what we've got doing, going is putting all those together to everybody gets what they want out of a good project. Uh, and they benefit a lot of species, they benefit human recreation, they benefit farmers who are trying to make a living on the land. Um, and, and you know, we we keep understanding that there are threats to threats to those waters and we work to address those. Sometimes it's dam removals where dams heat the water in an impoundment with solar heating and then they send that water uh, downstream or they, they interrupt a stream because fish need to get up and down a stream to, to spawn mm -hmm. just as part of their normal um, normal life cycle and things that interrupt that, things that interrupt mm -hmm. the, the healthy overall habitat are things that we get concerned with. Seems like some of these things run into each other, like trying to control flooding by having dams, you know, contributes to sediment and water warming and things like that, and, and, and fish not being able to get upstream. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how temperature was just so important, especially for trout, mm -hmm. that, that having these cold, stream, cold springs is wonderful, and then you dam them up could be beavers damming up too. It could be. Um, and so now mm -hmm. I, you know, I've encountered people who want to save the beavers and feel like that that saving the trout and saving the beavers is a collision course. And so there again, it's like everybody needs to hear the whole a whole story and begin to, you know, work together to protect mm -hmm. all the species. Mm -hmm. And yeah. There, let me digress a second to talk about spring cricks. The the groundwater that comes out of our springs at the bases of our bluffs 
uh, comes from rainwater that's landed on the uplands, works its way down through our limestone and sandstone bedrock and picks up uh, chemicals on the way down and get and filters out in these springs. And the spring temperatures are usually somewhere in the neighborhood of 48 degrees to 52 degrees pretty much year-round. And that means that for the most part our streams don't freeze in the winter. Mm-hmm. And then in hotter summer temperatures they're conducive to, they stay fairly close to that and they might get up to the low 60s, but those are temperatures that trout can tolerate that for the most part you're not going to see cool water species like rock bass and smallmouth and northerns coming into. Um, so that's why that's what makes these streams so uh, unique and so rich. They have chemicals that feed the critters, they have temperatures that are conducive to the cold water assembly of bugs and, and fish and other species. Uh, and, and that's and so when I look at northern Wisconsin, I see streams that warm up in the summer and, and uh, the, the trout have to go find mm. their own much rarer spring sources. But you wanted to talk about beavers. The, when, when Duke talks about the rain falling on, uh, on the bluffs, um, we live in an area of karst, K-A-R-S-T, karst topography. And when the water trickles down, it picks up the, the chemicals and the, the minerals. The minerals. Mm-hmm. But it also picks up what may have been spread on the top of the bluff. That's what I was wondering. Um, Those chemicals. <laughs> irresponsible um, manure application. Um, we, we live in a world full of manure, and, and if we handle it right, it's beneficial to everybody. But when it's on top of the bluff, everything percolates down to the bottom. It hits bedrock, and it pops up as a spring. Um, if we didn't have the bluffs, we wouldn't have the springs. Um, the difference between warm water and cold water would be driving through Reedstown to take a look at the difference between the West Fork of the Kickapoo River, which is a trout stream because it's fed by springs, and the Kickapoo River itself, which is not a trout stream, it's a warm water stream, and that's fed with runoff from farm fields and all the smaller streams that empty into it. So in this area, we have both cold water and warm water, and a, a cool way to experience that is to drive around in February. For the most part, those streams that are open and have flowing water, those are trout streams because the water that's in them is it's... now warmer than the air. Um, and for those of us who fish in January and February in 45 degree water, when you land a trout and you pick them up and hold them in your hands, they're warm because the air temperature is 30, but the trout is 48 degrees. It's just kind of an anomaly. <laughs> when you are wading along a trout stream um, in February and you find an actively growing patch of watercress, that watercress is growing because it's being protected by the underwelling spring that's there. And to, to my fly fishers, um, those who wade along in February and find actively growing watercress, they'll make a note of that spot. And in August, when it's deathly hot, there's where trout are going to be. That's their, oh, their, that's their air conditioning. Uh-huh. That, that's where it's going oh. to be. The, the other yes. thing that's, that's going on, we've heard a lot of comments, a lot of concern about pollinators and how important they are to our, um, veg, our, our botany and in this part mm-hmm. of the world and a lot of other places. What There's are a, the pollinators? The pollinators are, are the bees and the, and the butterflies, butterflies and, and uh, all those species that help 
um, everything grow, whether it's your orchards or your clover. A lot of unnoticeable yeah. insects that you don't and, even realize are pollinating, and, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, trout eat a lot of those. But uh, th- there's a growing body of research that shows that uh, the things that are threatening pollinators are often agricultural chemicals that are also threatening lots and lots of other species, including the aquatic species that make these rivers richer. And- uh, Oh, hmm. So herbicides that are killing weeds are also killing vegetation that Mm -hmm. the wildlife need. Insecticides and nematicides that are killing grubs, they don't have the knowledge to just kill the grub and not kill the stoneflies and the mayflies. They kill mm-hmm. insects. That's what that chemical does. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yes. so we're very oh. concerned about that. And there's a lot of use of uh, neonicotinoids, uh, which are a particular class of uh, pesticide, that um, that are hap- that are getting into into our streams, and they're they're depressing insect populations. That means you're going to depress everything else that lives in in those systems. So there's concern about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and stay tuned for that because there's more and more research on it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you reach, you reach a tipping point where the, the science is undeniable that these adverse impacts are having, and then they can do something about mm-hmm. it. It happened with you know, DDT, it happened with atrazine, mm-hmm. it happened with other things. So stay tuned on that and we'll We'll talk more about it at some point mm-hmm. down the road. So I did you, want to get back to beavers a little bit because I, you know, it, it kind of shows how, you know, you have the interests of agriculture, you have the interests of certain wildlife species, preserve the wolf, preserve mm-hmm. the deer, preserve the beavers. Then you have, well, hey, preserve the trout streams or preserve mm-hmm. insects. I mean, you have so many things, and mm-hmm. they are all they are all interconnected. There's a, there's a lot of people that are excited about some impacts of beavers, and a lot of that uh, excitement comes from uh, work in the West, where uh, reintroduction, reintroduction of, of, beaver species, of beavers has allowed ranchers uh, to uh, stockpile snowmelt water in, in meadows that used to just dry up. Now they have a, a beaver dam and they can uh, and they can pile up some water that their cows can, uh, that'll keep their, their meadows green through more of the summer. But it's such a different geology. It is. Than here. Yeah, I mean, they're protecting something else there or developing mm-hmm. something sure. where beavers can really pay, play a mm-hmm. really important, beneficial mm-hmm. role. And, and they, play a ro- mm-hmm. they play different roles even in different car- parts of Wisconsin. Oh, okay. There are higher and lower gradient streams with more slope or less slope. In low, low slope areas, those dams don't blow out in floods, and you can you can fly over a stream in uh, north of Crandon, for instance, in the northeast part of the state, and and there are so many beaver dams that it looks like a string of pearls, going for miles, and those pose uh, such uh, such a hindrance to to cold water. They warm up the water, and they uh, there a long-term study indicated that. You can have beavers in those streams or you can have trout, but you can't have both. And so mm-hmm. for years, the DNR has had a crew up there that has worked on about 10% of the streams, and they blow up dams and they trap the beavers on those streams, and they restore a, a, a series of meanders and expose gravel, which has more food and spawning habitat. 
uh, and and those become trout streams again, mm. uh, and then they leave the string of pearls over here. And if people want, uh, if people like beavers, those are the places uh, places to go. So they or, can't really all be in the same place, it, and and they're not really compatible. Well, let's talk about our part of the driftless. We're, you know, we have a lot of a lot of every coulee has a a stream bed that eventually is fed by some springs and then has some water in it goes farther down, meets with other tributaries, and forms a stream that might be bigger and, and have, have, be trout habitat. But in those upper areas, oftentimes we get beavers that dam those up, and, uh, and actually for a while those uh, impoundments, if some trout can get into them, uh, they might be decent trout habitat for a while. Eventually they'll blow out in a flood and send a slug of sediment down, on downstream. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you get into a situation where habitat has been worked to done to stabilize banks and improve a variety of trout habitat, uh, oftentimes that gets flooded. The vegetation that's on those improved areas uh, gets washed off, and when the dam goes out uh, in a flood, the project can go out too. The project is damaged. So we put a fair amount of money into these projects, and uh, and to have them wash out because we didn't do something to control the beavers is uh, is a, a sort of a uh, a wasted resource and mm -hmm. and you know there's 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 all kinds of value things here people value beavers because they're industrious they value trout because they're uh, beautiful and tasty and offer good recreation uh, but but you know sometimes I think about how uh, it's one species that's used to manipulating habitat uh, being uh, jealous or opposed to another species that's used to have manipulating habitat. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's an awful lot of water here that has much less erosion and much higher quality habitat for a variety of species because of the work that we've done uh, to, to improve that habitat. Mm -hmm. both, both species he mentioned, um, beaver and trout, are, are both uh, native and environmentalists and conservationists tend to lean toward protecting what's native mm -hmm. um, as opposed to what's what's invasive um, and I, I don't have an answer trout versus beaver um, they <laughs> pe people smarter than me will will figure it out mm -hmm. um, Duke mentioned one term that I, I wanted to help out your listeners um, coolies um, we have a lot of streams. You'll see signs, German coolie, Bohemian, Rollins, Mormon coolie. The French word for flow is couler. Mm -hmm. And we've bastardized that into, into coolies. A lot of the coolies were named after the uh, people who settled it. Their, their nationalities, Norwegian, would, would be one. German would be another. Some would be the, the farm family that settled. Rollins coolie would be another. Well, I just want to pause for station ID. You're listening to WDRT 91.9 FM and streaming live on the Internet at WDRT.org, where you can also listen to podcasts of this and other shows. Um, and I'm uh, talking with Duke Welter and Joseph Meyer, who are both, you can tell, they're, they're uh, very knowledgeable and very caring about our environment here and how, how trout fit into that picture and protecting this special environment that we have in, uh, in the um, Driftless area because 
because of the karst, you know, people hear karst and they go, I think I'll close my eyes and leave this lecture. But actually, we need to know more about <laughs> why this is so, such a special place. So anyway, these guys are not only fishermen, but they are chefs. So we will be moving on shortly to talk about food. Um, but now, let's see, have we covered what we wanted to talk about? The just... I guess if you look at nature, it's it's a balance, right? And every time people get involved and they want to have eliminate a predator or something, because some part of the population, farmers or whatever, don't like that predator, and we want to encourage something else that is actually like deer that maybe are overpopulating and then getting sick, or we have all these things to balance, and I guess. You know, as as Joseph said, we kind of look to nature as to what would what would balance, and try to go along with nature, because some of the things we've done have just really interfered with nature. And we think maybe it's a good idea from one point of view, like saving from flooding, or uh, maybe some of these dams have been built for electrical generation, sounds like a really good idea, and yet now Duke tells me that some of these dams that were built for that purpose, are we're finding out they have a deleterious effect, and, and or maybe they didn't at first, but now they do. Just so many things to think about now, and 10 years from now, 50 years from now. So tell us a little bit about some of the dams that are now being looked at to, to take down. Well, of course, Vernon County and Monroe County, our driftless counties since the 60s, have built uh, a fair number of flood control, control dams. It seems to me there are nearly a couple dozen in, in Vernon County that are up in the, a ways up in the coolies, and they're intended to catch, they were originally intended to catch rainwater off the uplands and slowly meter it out so that you don't have uh, a flush of flood water going down a valley. And in the 28, and those those dams, as I said, were were built in the 60s and 70s, and a lot of them have filled up with sediment, and they have problems because the the joint where the earthen dam meets the uh, sandstone limestone wall is uh, is where they're giving way. And in the 2018 floods, we had uh, five in Vernon and Monroe counties that failed, and sent walls of water down the West Fork of the Kickapoo, the uh, Rulins Coulee, and Bohemian Valley into Coon Creek. Is that causing, what happened? Causing plenty of flooding, uh, oh. such that, you know, in Coon Valley, they, the, the rescue people were rescuing people out of the second stories of their homes. They, now the, uh, the USDA agency that built those dams with the counties, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, is looking at thousands of those dams across the country that have been built since then and saying, wow, we had this rash of failures in the light of the predictions of more intense short-duration flooding. What's the outlook for these dams? And while people uh, look to those for some security that are living downstream, and uh, it's turning out that the NRCS is recommending that those dams be decommissioned, in other words, uh, removed, taken out of service. And NRCS has just decided that for the dams in Vernon and Monroe counties, 
they're, they'll pay 100% of the cost of removing them and then work on other methods to try and keep that erosive water up on the ridge tops. Uh, and that's going to be a big job because we lost so much soil over the years that there's not that much soil on the ridge tops. It's not very long before you get to, uh, to bedrock when you, you, you want to plant an apple tree. Uh, Do help us out here. NRCS stands Na for? Natural Resources Conservation Service. Thank you. Which okay. is the USDA agency that's responsible for soil erosion control and water quality. And they're the ones that did that first soil erosion control project at Coon Valley in 1935. They've gone through several names for the agency. But they're a major factor in this area. The dams that were built in the, in the 60s. Those were built with the best technology they had at that time. Yep. Has the technology for building dams improved? I think they're still looking for looking for solutions for how to keep that water uh, from flooding out these valleys and not causing uh, gully erosion and and a huge amount of sediment loss. You know, in, in Vernon County, some places down along the Bad Axe, you have, you have banks that are uh, 20 to 25 feet high. I, I have waded along in, in some of those streams, and the, the bank is on, on my shoulder, and I can see sections of wire fencing and sections of barns that <laughs> the silt has just, just overcome. And really? when, there, when there was a flood, it would wash a barn, or it would completely wipe out a fence. It would be on the bottom of the valley, and subsequent years flooding and silt erosion just cover them all up. And they build another fence. Mm -hmm. And so we've had projects where the farmer would say, well, there was a, a kind of a terrace there from all the erosion settling there, and there'd be half of a barbed wire fence sticking out, and the, we'd be talking about how to do the project, and the farmer would say, well, there are two more fences under that one from all the deposition. And, and uh, you know, out on the, out on the bad axe, you you look down off one of these banks that you just have to repel repel over to get to the river, and you look down there and you can see stumps, big stumps that are two foot diameter sticking out of the river bottom, and they all have a scour hole around them. And if you think about it, they were at the valley floor level when that Original area was settled valley, yep. in the 1840s and 50s, and they were probably mature oak trees in the 1840s and 50s that were. 100 or 120, 150 years old. So those stumps are trees that were acorns before George Washington was born. <laughs> and now, ironically, the river has migrated enough to expose them again. And there's a scour hole around each one, and there's probably a uh, a, a nice brown trout in there. I was going to say, that might yep. be a little habitat there. And, and it's so mm. ironic because it was us immigrants that caused all this deposition. And the brown trout are from originally brought in in the mm -hmm. 1890s from Germany and Scotland. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, fishing for, fishing for immigrants, fishing for immigrants. Uh, <laughs> well, we could, we could talk a lot about this, well, I mean, for hours, and I'm sure you do when you go to meetings and, and, and confer about this. What's causing what? Mm -hmm. Who's at fault? Well, <laughs> what can we do about it? You know, and you hear about no-till, Farming, and that sounds good. Let's not till anymore. But how are they keeping the weeds down? They are using herbicides. Well, and, and so no tilling sounds good for soil, you know, keeping the soil. 
from being loosened and washing in rain and stuff, but... <coughs> yeah. We bemoan some of the farming practices that we have here, and for the most part, rightly so, yet there are others that come from other parts of our planet to fish here, and they see our farming practices, and they marvel at how forward-thinking our farmers are with contour plowing, with uh, the rotation of, of, of corn, wheat, corn, wheat. So uh, soil erosion is, is managed. Um, so we can bemoan our practices, but we're light years ahead of some of great. the people. <laughs> and and right. there, are, there are some great groups in our area, in Tainter Creek and the Bad Axe and Coon Valley, uh, the, who are working between farmers in the watershed and other groups that are interested in the watershed and its health, mm -hmm. uh, to try and improve practices, uh, to keep that soil on the land, to allow farmers to be able to make a living. Uh, some people think that uh, managed rotational grazing for beef and dairy herds is, is a way that's, uh, that's really conducive to the kind of topography that we have here. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of slopes around here that have been farmed heavily in the last 15 years since corn and soybean prices went up. And that's caused a lot of erosion and runoff problems, and we've lost contour strips. Uh, so, you know, trying to trying to encourage farming methods that are easier on the land and still allow farmers to make a living is really important in this area. And I applaud. I've worked with some of these groups, and they're and they're great to work with. Mm, great. Today, in fact, there's an event uh, in Coon Valley from uh, 10 to 4 at the Coon Valley Village Park, Memorial Park, uh, that's put on by the Coon Creek Community Watershed Association, which is a farmer-led group with a lot of community folks that are concerned about the flooding. And they're talking about, uh, they'll, be, they'll have uh, fishing and a pig roast, and you'll be able to hear from Trout Unlimited and conservation groups, and Fish and Wildlife Service will have some fun stuff there. Uh, that's from 10 to 4, and there's music and a pig roast. So, Are we speaking uh, of Saturday? Saturday. Okay. Yep. Come on that, down. It'll oh, be while this oh show my. is going on. Oh, my goodness. You yeah. might meet the famous Duke. Will he be there? And his even more famous <laughs> wife, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm sure you're anxious to get on to... Um, going out and fishing. Now, you guys have been fishing for a couple of months. I didn't know that you could do that. Sure. Explain the, to me these different seasons. The early catch and release start, season started the first Saturday in January and continued through yesterday, Friday. Back, back, back up. Yep. It, the trout fishing season ended in October, and it ended because that's when the native fish start to spawn. So we leave them alone. So what's spawning? Spawning is when they reproduce. Okay, uh, and, and they and there are people who would um, target these pretty susceptible fish, mm -hmm. and it's the bigger fish that spawn in cold, clear water, and their targets. Mm -hmm. So we leave the fishing alone in the October fifteenth ish. Yep. So so there is no fishing. It's not catch and release. There is no fishing. We let mm -hmm. these fall spawners spawn, and these are both okay. both the native brook trout and the brown trout that were introduced as a, the streams got worse quality, they were, uh, they were a little more tolerant of degraded conditions. And so the, the brown trout, as streams have gotten better, they've even thrived more. So we have lots and lots of streams where we have lots and lots of sure. brown, and brown trout reproduction. So okay. I, I interrupted, we stopped yeah. fishing in October, 
And then fishing starts up again January. And and then it goes through the first Friday in May, and the first Saturday in May is the general fishing opener, when uh, you can you can keep fish according to the the trout regs, and we have fairly liberal regulations in the driftless area for for harvest harvesting fish. We have a variety of regulations, so if you get your license, you should also get the the trout fishing regulations brochure, which will mm -hmm. show you how many uh, streams there are in your county. And in Vernon County, it's something like 275 miles of classified trout water. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and, you know, when we talk about the density of streams again, of streams like Monroe, Richland, Vernon, uh, have some of, the, some of the richest numbers of trout streams in the state. And we also have a, quite a significant amount of public access to these streams, because every place we do a project, we do public access, make sure. sure there's public access. Let's talk about numbers of trouts in the stream. Um, I can fish a mile of stream working my way upstream through a pasture. Um, potentially, I could walk past 1,500 trout in one mile of stream. Oh, wow. For the most part, they're naturally reproducing. Mm -hmm. The brook trout are native. They've always been here. The brown trout were introduced in the turn of last century. But there are many streams in Vernon County that are rated at 1,500 trout per mile. There are some mm -hmm. with quite a few more than that. Uh, we've done projects and had the, the habitat so improved and the spawning so improved that we went as high as 7,000 brook trout per mile. Um, and uh, and I, I, you know, as a guy who who uh, figures he's fishing for the dun dumbest 10% of trout in, in a stream, you know, that ups your chances <laughs> compared to a stream that's, uh, that's got 250 trout per mile. Mm. So, so here we are. <laughs> um, I can enter a trout stream with, with $1,000 in my right hand, rod reel fly line, perhaps 1,000 flies on my person, in mm. my vest. And I'm, I'm targeting a creature with the brain the size of half a lentil. <laughs> this is this is not a bright creature, um, and and brook trout. Other than making baby brook trout, the only two goals in a brook trout's life is eat and not get eaten. So they're they're not bright animals. So with with all of my gear, and I target this fish, and I catch this fish and land it, I get all puffed up like a toad because I have fooled this fish. And that, that's how silly fly fishers can be. No. Now, tell me about you know, fly fishing. I know nothing about fly fishing. I don't uh, even know. I, I don't know what is catch and release and what's fly fishing, and do they cross over? Uh, in, in, in my trout schools, we go over a lot of this. Um, people talk about, oh, you fly fish, you don't like like real fish or, or general fishing. Well, fly fishing predated everything else, other than netting and spearing, going after fish with an angle, uh, Dame Juliana Verner's 14-something-something, French nun, um, wrote a paper on going after trout with an angle, uh, which is why we're called anglers. Uh, fly fishing is a woman's sport. We prefer the term fly fishers rather than fishermen. Um, my mentors and some of my, my really wonderful friends, wonderful women, fly fishers. Um, we understand that trout eat for the most part, bugs. So we are crafting out of bits of fur and feathers uh, onto a wire hook, something that imitates that bug. Um, we happen to call it a fly. 
um, but it just as easily could be an ant, a beetle, a cricket, a grasshopper, mm-hmm. um, and then subsurface flies that that um, imitate minnows. So the deliver oh, the okay. delivery system of that little bit of dryer lint on a hook, which weighs practically nothing, we need to cast the weight of the fly line. Um, People will watch a river runs through it and see all that fly line in the air. Typically, that's not how we do it. That's how Robert Redford wanted to see it in the air, and he did a magnificent job from a cinematography standpoint, but not from a fly fishing standpoint. We're casting the weight of the fly line. It's like casting a rope. It turns over in the air, and the fly lands on the surface of the water like a butterfly with sore feet, and it imitates that insect. In general tackle fishing, it's the weight of the lure or the bait on the hook that bends the rod that that propels that out into the water. Our flies are weightless, so we use the weight of the fly line itself. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly on the surface or just gently under the surface, whereas regular fishing... Lure fishing is yep. it, it, it sinks down in. You can, the it pool. does. We're, you can fish at all levels. You oh, can fish I see. Dry flies on the surface, uh, streamers or wet flies in the under surface area, mm-hmm. and then you can fish nymphs or crayfish patterns down on the ver- on the mm-hmm. very bottom that, that imitate immature bugs. Mm-hmm. We're we're pretty effective with the fly rod down to about four feet. A- after that, there are specialized techniques to do that, but where the trout are feeding. Is, is in that in that top eight inches of water oh, for, okay. for the most part. Well, I just want to take a break again and tell you that you're uh, listening to WDRT. Um, who's in the kitchen? I'm Philothea Beeson, and I'm I'm we're we're almost getting to the kitchen, but um, uh, I'm talking to Duke Welter and Joseph Meyer, who are both really great fishermen and interested in protecting this w- wonderful. Um, sport and source of food and um, and the environment and so forth. And so we are talking about um, fly fishing and traditional f- casting, and uh, I'm really interested in that, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why probably I haven't caught very many trout, because I'm, I'm fishing too deep. Well, in, mm-hmm. in our area and across the state, uh, generally the surveys of anglers Show, show that our trout fisher, our trout anglers are kind of split in their tackle methods about equally, maybe 40% in this area of fly fish and 30% bait fish and 30% spin fish. A lot of people that I know use more than one method. Oh, there are, okay. There are times that, uh, that a, uh, an angle worm is a really effective bait, especially after a rain when the water's brown uh, because a lot of soil and angle worms are being washed downstream. There are times when they don't want to look at bait because there's a bug emergence like there was there was yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I uh, you know there's a there's a really interesting event coming up uh, a week from today at Sugar Creek Bible Camp that the DNR and Pheasants Forever are putting on together it's called uh, fishing for a trout dinner, and it teaches people to fish any way they want to fish, uh, spin, bait, or fly. Experienced fishers take them out on the water with a goal of not only getting them catching fish, but bringing them back, and then showing them ways to cook them for dinner. 
Wonderful. And that's that's the topic that I want to get to on our show. Well, <laughs> if you'll just mention a couple of other sources, um, you have a, quite a few brochures and pamphlets here. Sure. Uh, if someone wants to learn more about fishing and how to fish and where to fish, mm-hmm. what, are, what do you have here yeah. and where can you get these? Well, plenty of our Trout Unlimited chapters offer uh, workshops. We have plenty of guides uh, and teachers like Joseph, who offer clinics on that you can sign up for uh, to to their learn to fish clinics. Uh, we have good resources these days for uh, finding out where to fish. And uh, one of some counties that have a fair number of fishing easements have put them into either on online like Vernon County or uh, uh, Monroe County ha- has a it online and, and an excellent brochure showing a hundred easements in Monroe County uh, showing where to fish. There's a book that you can get called the uh, Map Guide to Improve Trout Waters of Wisconsin uh, that can be very helpful. It tells you when uh, habitat work was done, where it's mapped out uh, and it has GPS coordinates and that's very helpful. The DNR has a, a section called Manage, Tr- Manage Lands or the T-R-O-U-T tool, and it's some acronym for something, uh, that that tells you where DNR-held easements are. Uh, and there's a commercial subscription service called Trout Routes, which is uh, pretty pretty effective for our area in showing uh, most of the easements that are out there. Mm-hmm. We have about 1,500 miles of legal public access across 6,000 miles of streams in the Driftless area, northeast Iowa, Southeast Wisconsin, uh, or Southeast Minnesota, and Southwest Wisconsin. So, for for a a beginning angler or somebody new to this area, and and correct me if I'm wrong, this is what I've taught for years. Um, all the moving water in Wisconsin is held in public trust. Um, there is no flies only. There is no fly fishing only. Uh, there is in Michigan, but certainly not in Wisconsin. As a matter of fact, on the Trout Unlimited Charter, the original charter, the word fly fishing doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the water is all held in public trust, if you can access that water from a public easement, which is a bridge, if you can access that water, if you can climb into the water and start wading, you can wade up or downstream until your heart's content. And you're not trespassing on anybody's not, private property. You are okay. not. What you cannot do is there's a pretty interesting-looking stretch of stream across that field I'll hop this fence and cross the farmer's field to get to that stream. That is trespassing. Okay. So if you can get in a stream, you can wade upper downstream. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can um, circumnavigate any obstruction in the stream. Even if it's water too deep to wade in, you're allowed to get out, circumnavigate that, get yourself back in the water. Oh, okay. But you need to keep your feet wet in those waters. Yep. So with 6,000 miles of water, 1,500 miles of public access, of legal public access, which gives you a 33-foot strip on each side of the stream to walk. There's another twice that amount where just talking to a landowner and asking permission will get you on. Sure. Mm -hmm. We have hospitable landowners. So you need to have rubber boots. 
And you guys <laughs> use waders, probably. We do. But you put have have a suspender strap on. I mean, they really mm -hmm. go all the way up your waist. Some some do. Some <laughs> some are wading pants. Um, mm -hmm. I I know I'm going fishing this afternoon. I know where I'm going fishing that I'm not going to be wading through deep water. Um, it's more comfortable for me to wear pants than than big old suspender. Mm -hmm. So they have boots on the bottom, and then I they do. turn into pants. I yeah. do. Uh huh. Okay. Well, uh, now you have a book here that's uh, kind of getting my eye. Called. <laughs> it's called Hook, Line, and Supper. It's by an author named Hank Shaw, who uh, was educated in Wisconsin, grew up in New, New Jersey, and lives in California, and searches the world for fish and game recipes. And uh, and Hank uh, is excellent at at. Uh, different ways to cook things uh, and and can make good recommendations mm -hmm. for you and you can look at his uh, his website which is hunter angler gardener cook yeah. uh, and his blog is is excellent so you can find plenty of fish recipes oh, and trout recipes oh that sounds there. good that sounds like a great resource absolutely so let's and, talk about you know so you got your fish <laughs> both of you i want you to come mm -hmm. in you got your fish and now what do you do with it and how yeah. what what are the best ways to Here's prepare before we go on, here's mm -hmm. an interesting concept. <laughs> Up until right after World War II, the American fishing public uh, fished entirely differently. They would, they could go out in the morning, catch two trout for breakfast, and they would be done fishing. The concept of going out to another state and fishing for a weekend, totally foreign to them because they physically did not have the time. So their they didn't understand the, the entire concept of catch and release. Um, they would go catch two trout and, and quit fishing. Um, now, the stream that I get in, I may park my truck by the side of the road, get in at a bridge, and I would wade three hours upstream and then fish my way back, take two hours to come back, to come back to my truck. I don't have a live well like they do in a boat I would need to carry my trout, ergo the creel that was normally filled with watercress or reeds or something to keep the trout cool. And you couldn't catch a mess of fish and come back and have a fish fry. It would be one or two fish. So now that we have more free time, more leisure time, um, now we can get into some of the delicacies that Duke's going to talk about. I just wanted mm -hmm. to let you know that but, the whole concept has changed. But you're not really going, you have a limit of how many you can fish per True. day, right? True. Sure. And it might be two or three to ten fish, uh -huh. okay. uh, and mm -hmm. and each of our streams has a particular regulation. It's often uh, uh, in our area five fish, no minimum. Uh, there are streams with a ten fish limit, like Bohemian Valley. Uh, and size. Uh, and some mm -hmm. have a size. Mm -hmm. Some size. Some some streams might say um, five fish, twelve inches maximum. Others might say five fish under ten inches. Others may say uh, may have a, an eight-inch minimum. Uh, it depends on what the mm -hmm. local fish biologist thinks is the optimal uh, uh, regulation for that stream, what that stream can withstand in terms of harvest. Now, in our area, the surveys show that not very many fish get uh, brought home. Uh, there was a survey on the West Fork of the Kickapoo last year that uh, suggested that in the, in the surveyed areas, people had caught, oh, I don't know, 2,000-ish trout, and probably 70 were brought home, uh, and the rest were released. 
Okay, and, so uh, I always get confused between fly fishing and catch and release. You could keep a fish that you caught with absolutely. a fly, absolutely. and you could eat it. Sure. Absolutely. So sure. that doesn't mean f- so catch and release. I mean, that, fly that, fishing doesn't eliminate fly fishing eating. is a, ca- a fishing okay. method. Okay. Catch and release is a regulation uh, any, that applies to anybody who's fishing with any method. So does it mm-hmm. harm the fish to release them? Uh, depending on the uh, <laughs> technique. Uh, surveys have shown that there's hooking mortality with bait fish, uh, with with fish caught on bait that's much higher, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 45 percent mm-hmm. on this different surveys across the country. With spin, uh, spin fishing, uh, it's somewhere less than 10 percent hooking mortality, and with fly fly caught fish, less than 5 percent. Mm-hmm. And and part of the reasons are that. Uh, bait fishing, often the fish take it deep in their in their gullet, and to try and release them and have them live is difficult. Mm. Fly fishing, most of those fish mm. are lip hooked, and and it's easier to uh, release them, especially uh, release them unharmed, especially with uh, barbless hooks. And I use barbless hooks all the time oh. because I don't like to hook myself in the ear. Yeah. And and the hooks are, are exceedingly fine wire. Uh-huh. Um, in okay. the general tackle industry, they tend to be oh, a, a little okay. bit a little bit heavier. Okay, I see. Well, we need to get to some how to fit how to how, how, how about to a recipe? Of fish. <laughs> if I catch a fish that I want to take home, and I often take home a couple for breakfast for my wife and me, and they, and my optimal size is about ten to twelve inches. I don't keep brook trout around our area. Uh, I keep brown trout, and there are plenty of those. And the fisheries biologists say uh, we've got we've got plenty of them. Don't worry about keeping a few. Uh, the first thing I do is I I take the I make a cut on them and I get the gills out. You don't want the stream gills. side. A stream side, yeah. And then I open the gullet and I take out the entrails and I check the stomach to see what they're eating because that gives me clues about what I should be fishing with for the rest of the day. And if I go home, I might tie those things that they're feeding on and fish them the next day. So I put them in a in a in my my handy patented creel <laughs> is a Ziploc with with ice cubes in it that I carry in my vest, and I put those fish in there <laughs> within a few minutes after they're caught, and they stay good and fresh until I get home. And then the next day, or for breakfast, I'll take I'll take those fish and I'll probably fillet them and cut them into one and a half inch chunks oh and then i'll i'll roll them in uh, or i'll uh, i'll put them in uh, a beaten egg and um and then in a ziploc with uh cracker crumbs parmesan cheese salt uh salt a little wee bit of onion powder and a little wee bit of garlic powder and then i'll saute them in butter and we'll have them for breakfast oh. or if we can't wait uh we'll have them for Cocktail hors d'oeuvres, <laughs> and, my, and two fish is just perfect for my wife and I, uh-huh. and uh, and I think she's kind of chomping at the bit for the <laughs> general it's about time to general yeah. opener. <laughs> so you that you're 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 filleting and cutting up a fish, but trout are very. You don't have to do that, do you? I they am, are the easiest fish to cook in the they, world, aren't they? They, they are, and mm-hmm. and we've talked about this before. I gravitate towards recipes that are just minimal ingredients, and mm-hmm. and each ingredient needs to stand out. So Duke's method of having the fish gutted and bled and it's and it's beautifully preserved if i were to continue that cut from the anal vent down to the tail and then i can take a boning knife go up the rib cage towards the head break it at the tail and peel off the entire skeleton and now i have a butterfly trout with 
just a little bit of flour dusted, not dredged, dusted, flesh side down into a pan with uh, clarified butter, maybe a little bit of olive oil, um, just until it starts to get color, turn it over, slide the trout onto a plate, deglaze the pan with a squeeze of lemon juice and white wine, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm done. Yeah. Uh, so in, you're... In, a, in a super fancy world, I might put some parsley yeah. on top of it, but I'm done with it. My presentation is super simple. His presentation is flat out delicious. Uh -huh. <laughs> and the skin is still on in yours. Absolutely. And you can yes, eat the is. skin. Yes, yes, you can. I love trout. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to scale them. You don't have to, they're, you know. They do have scales, but they're microscopic. And you can eat them. Yep. yep. Yeah. That That's cut, great. That cut, okay. by the way, is called a Hemingway cut. It is. Okay. Well, his, a couple more recipes. We just have a few more minutes. Hemingway trout would be to take the butterfly trout that I had uh, described and fold it over with fried bacon and some kind of onion. And what, yeah, a shallot. Yeah. And then fry them. Or you could mm -hmm. grill them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So two, more, two minutes. Got it. Favorite recipe? Um Consuming a whole trout is, is a luxury and it's a joy. Um, if you have access to a smoker and you're able to smoke the trout and then using that flesh to flavor something else, a pasta with a cream sauce with flaked smoked trout or a chowder with flaked smoked trout is, mm -hmm. is, is just heaven on earth. Oh, my goodness. Or good, good spring salad greens. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Another, another thing that I enjoy doing if the opportunity arises is, is some of our other, is cooking that trout with some of our other springtime bounty. And uh, uh, sauteed trout and fresh morels uh, in butter are wonderful. Ramps. Mm -hmm. And ramps. Ramps. I've got mm -hmm. ramps in my garden. Sure. I got them. I planted them, and now I have ramps in my garden. I'm so excited. You can, it, it, am I going to get arrested by the DNR saying that you can harvest watercress? No. Okay. No. So if you you can pull up the watercress, you've got to do a pretty good job of rinsing it out to get rid of the dragonfly larva and the little scuds mm -hmm. that are in there, little like roly poly shrimpy things. But but sliding your sauté trout onto a bed of uh, lightly dressed watercress. Yeah. Oh la yeah. la, mm -hmm. that sounds really great. Oh well, we'll have to just have a longer show on just cooking with fish because we really ran out of time. I have been talking with Duke Welter and Joseph Meyer, both wonderful fishermen and chefs, and I've really enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you again. It's been a treat, Philothea. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Who's in the Kitchen. I'm Philothea Beeson. You're listening to WDRT Community Radio. 91.9 .9 FM coming from Viroqua, Wisconsin. And we'll see you again next week.